like you to turn to uh, Luke chapter 18, if you would. Uh, I'm going to read a very familiar uh, scripture to you. I'm sure those who have been around would have read this uh, many, many times. So it's Luke chapter 18 and it's verse 1, which says, And he, that's Jesus, of course, spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, um, only on a couple of occasions do we have a, the sort of a meaning of the parable before we even start the parable. So we're, we're told here what this is all about. What the Lord is about to say is related to this statement in verse 1. But verse 1 starts off with the word and. And and obviously, if you look up even the Greek word, it's, it's a connective word. Uh, moreover, sometimes it's translated. Uh, so moreover. This is what follows. So it follows from something. So we need to go back and see the context of what the Lord was going to introduce this parable to. And you go back, and we're not going to read it all necessarily, but we'll go back to verse 24 of chapter 17. Remember, the, the ideas of chapters and verses and numbers here are all to do with people later on deciding uh, the best way to reference the Bible. So they weren't part of uh, the original manuscripts, of course. So here we are in verse 24, which says, For as the lightning, this is Jesus still speaking, For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. So the Lord is talking here about his return. Now, he hasn't gone yet. He's still on the planet. He hasn't even fulfilled what he came to do the first time around. But now he's talking about his return and he's saying his return is going to be spectacular. Uh, there are many people, if you Google it, if you want to go on YouTube, you can find numerous videos of people who've gone out on tropical storms and lightning things and so on and taken these videos and posted them on the internet because they're quite spectacular. And the thunder that goes with it and the flashes that goes with it, it's, it's quite an amazing sight. And many people put them up because they're impressed by them. Now, these are only examples. As you read through these verses, the Lord is trying to give some analogies, some parallels, some illustrations that help us appreciate that this is what it's all about. It's about the return of Jesus Christ. You wouldn't think so as far as the world is concerned generally, but the Lord wanted to emphasize that this is going to be a bright, glorious, swift, clearly identifiable situation. You're not going to, this is not going to be secretive. You're not going to miss this. This is not going to be something that, oh, I didn't see it. Uh, this would be, I mean, it's obviously more than lightning, but the lightning aspect of it is, a, is the Lord just trying to give a bit of a picture of how this might be. This is going to be incredibly sudden and, and dramatic and dynamic, the return of the Lord, as we would expect, of course. Another translation says, For when I return, you will know it beyond all doubt. Uh, it will be as evident as the lightning that flashes across the skies. Another translation says, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other, so it will be in the day when the Lord and the Son of Man comes or returns. His day. You know, this is what it's all about. From Genesis to Revelation, it's about His day. And this is all about his story. History is all about him. We see Jesus. And ultimately, of course, it's about Jesus Christ coming back to take up his rightful position 
as the King of Kings. And it will be a spectacular moment. And we should never lose sight of it. And the Lord wants to, us to see, not only in these verses here, but in numerous places in the Bible, he wants us to recognize this is what it's all about. This is the plan and purpose. It's about him coming back, not in flesh and blood form, not in the human form, but now as, as the Son of God, the glory and the majesty of it all. So he wants us to see the light. Uh, when uh, God spoke in the beginning, let there be light, uh, we've spoken on this recently. There's a lot of aspects to that. I'm sure this is one of the aspects of it. The lighting, uh, lighting up the sky, Jesus Christ's return. Uh, I mean, if we thought that lightning sort of was interesting and uh, rather fascinating to watch and so on, what an occasion this must be. What a glorious day his day is going to be. But then in verse 25, but, but first... Must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation? So this is not sort of a separate situation. These are linked together. They're, these are verses back to back. What the Lord is saying here, I must wear my crown of thorns before I can wear my royal crown. But it's happening and they're linked together. They're not really, I mean, they are separate events in terms of time and, and so on and space and geography. But as far as God is concerned, this is all one integral plan that Jesus Christ right from the very beginning was ordained to come to this planet in flesh and blood uh, and to be fully human and to go through all the process that he went through on our behalf, to die, to be spat upon, to be ridiculed and rejected and mocked and scoffed. But keeping in mind, this is all part of the overall process that ultimately this will usher in the King of Kings. They are linked together. And be rejected of this generation. Well, that generation certainly rejected him. They rejected him to the point where they crucified him. But you know something? If Jesus Christ were to come back in the same form in this day and age, we would crucify him over again. In fact, many people are constantly re-crucifying Jesus Christ, as it were, in their rejection of him, in their life and their lifestyle. And even those who claim somehow or other to be followers of Christ are not true followers because he said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. Why call me Lord, Lord, Jesus said, and do not that which I tell you to do. How can I be your Lord and master if you ignore me, if you're disobedient to me, if you reject me and my word and my ways and my principles? So we're still rejecting him. This generation's still rejecting him. And we, we don't live anyway, uh, as far as the world is concerned, in anticipation. If you talked about the return of the Lord to most people, it's a nonsense. They're not interested. They're not uh, even considering it in one way or another. But the Lord puts these here together. At first, he, yes, I've got to suffer. I've got to pay the penalty. I've got to pay the price for your sins. Because what's the point otherwise? If I come back and you're on the wrong end, how's that going to work for you? I've got to make provision for you to be part of that. I've got to make provision for you to be with me on that day, to make it not only his day but our day as well. So then he goes on and gives a bit more information. And these are sort of uh, just descriptive terms about different things as he goes through the next set of verses. And it's not an exhaustive sort of summary of things. It's just wanting to give us some insight into the magnitude of what we're dealing with. 
You see, the whole universe is really about the Lord's return. And yet we're so consumed with all the day-to-day affairs, you'd never think so. You'd never think that really even matters at all. And as far as God is concerned, he didn't think about all the mundane, stupid stuff that we've been involved in. He was thinking about ultimately his son reigning supreme and every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. That's what he had in mind. And we are just so caught up with everything else that we do. But that's not what God had in mind. And God still has in mind for his son to return and the provision that Jesus Christ made when he came the first time and dealt with the sin question now makes it possible for us to look forward to his return in anticipation. But then the Lord gives us some illustrations here. He starts to talk about Noah and the flood and judgment. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And uh, we know, as these people knew, the wickedness of those people back then. They knew the situation. They had their Old Testament scriptures. So they knew about Noah's time. They knew about the evil nature of it. They knew why there was a flood. They understood the the absolute wickedness of mankind and God had to deal with it, the corruption. They also knew about the absolute corruption of Sodom and Gomorrah and the story of Lot and his wife. They all knew about that. And yet, interestingly enough, the Lord doesn't refer to their wickedness as such. That's, that's taken for granted. What does he refer to? Let's read it. As it was in the days of Noe or Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. Now, today, this day and age, they did eat and they drank. They married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So what he points out is not their wickedness. That's obvious, as it is obvious for us today. But what also is obvious, and what what is the Lord pointing out? He points out their indifference, their lack of interest. They're consumed, distracted, caught up with everything else, as the world is. How many people stop and think about, oh, the Lord's returning? Maybe all the stuff that's happening on this planet is leading us to consider our relationship with God and his Son Most people wouldn't give it a moment's thought. We're too busy. We're too busy with life. In fact, the Bible uh, in other translations speaks about our indulging ourselves. Verse 26 in another translation says, When I return, the world will be as indifferent to the things of God as the people were in Noah's day. Now, the Bible tells us that Noah and Lot were preachers of righteousness. So not only were they building arcs and doing things, they were speaking as well and they were representing the Lord and they had ample opportunity in the time of the flood to get on board an ark and get saved, but they chose not to. Why? Well, they liked being wicked, but they probably didn't even regard themselves particularly as wicked. They were just simply living their life and doing their stuff and they were buying and selling and giving and taking and, and doing all the stuff that what the world is doing today consumed. We're more worried about how the stock market is, what the pandemic is doing to businesses and and our financial condition. And they're all real. No one's decrying any of that, of course. That's what they're doing back then. They weren't considering what does this all mean? What is going to happen? Is Jesus Christ going to come back and rule with a rod of iron? Is there going to be a change? Is the government going to be upon his shoulders? Have we got to get ourselves prepared? Do we need to be alert and watchful? Do we need to be ready for the occasion? No, no, we're just too busy. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here. That's the problem back then. 
Oh, they were wicked and they deserved judgment against them for their wickedness and their scant regard of God's principles and God's ways. But they were just indifferent about it all. They were just worldly. They were just living in unbelief and careless and casual and not even considering, not even giving it a moment's thought about whether they should change their approach. Uh, just recently, uh, uh, one of the ladies got up on uh, the newscast about America and she actually sa- said it. You know, our biggest problem is we need to return to God, is what she said. So this one person of all the newscasts that you can listen to about what's happening in America, the absolute anarchy and confusion in America, and we shouldn't just pick on them. That's the state of the world. They're just representative of, of where the world is heading. And the Lord is saying, that's what we're just involved in. You don't, you don't care about me. You're not interested in my son. You don't consider his death. You're just too busy doing your own thing, living your own life. Likewise, verse 28, also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. And have a look at when you look back at the immorality of what they're involved in. And we've even taken some words and put them in our dictionary now of some, from Sodom and Gomorrah. We've actually got them now as terminologies of what they represented back then. Oh, they were incredibly corrupt. But what does the Lord focus on? Yes, we know they were corrupt. The, the heart of man is desperately wicked, not just in Sodom and Gomorrah, not just in the times of, of Noah and the flood, but down through the generations and right to our day and age. But what does he point out? They just get on. They were looking more concerned about what's in the supermarket whether we're going to run out of toilet paper. (laughs) They bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. There's a good lesson here, isn't it? It does imply that life will perhaps be going on and the Lord's going to return. Maybe we're sort of looking for some spectacular other events when we don't need to be. We just need to see the overall scene of mankind and recognise it's ripe for the return of the Lord. And we are seeing all the things that the Bible speaks about, but do we need any more? Well, it may get a lot worse. It may. I don't know. Indications are that we're just seeing some aspects of it and it could accelerate very quickly. But in the meantime, even in the middle of the pandemic, we want to make our normal life, and that's what we're really focusing on, you would expect that people would, would want to hear more about God perhaps and what does this mean. At the beginning of the pandemic, they used some scriptural terms about the apocalypse and, and so on and Armageddon and so on. They used some of these terms. Now it's more how are we going to get back in, on deck again? How are we going to make sure we get our vaccine and how are we going to make sure these businesses open up and we've got to get back to school and we've got to do this and we've got to... And God's pushed way back. But the same day, verse 29, that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Yes, sudden destruction cometh upon them, but they'll be just going through the processes. It says in another translation, going about their daily business when sudden destruction, the flood came and fire and brimstone came when they were doing what? Going about their daily business. That's a stark warning for us. Now the translation to verse 30, business as usual. We're going to come back here, but I want you to go to Luke chapter 21. This is the parallel chapter to Matthew 24. 
many as are very familiar with Matthew 24, but we'll look at verse uh, 5 here of chapter 21 of Luke. And as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said. So they were, the Jewish people back then in Jerusalem were very attracted to and attached to their temple. They loved the materialism of it, the, the, just the spectacular nature of it and how splendid it was. And they prided themselves on being a very special people because they had the temple. And they, they were in Jerusalem and they had sort of a, the attachment to God. But they weren't living like that. They were living the same way as we read about before. And there was a judgment going to come upon Jerusalem. And the Lord does speak about that in these verses. But he uses that as an illustration to once again remind us about the state of the world. What happened to Jerusalem was that the Roman armies eventually came in and laid siege to them in 67 AD and finally came in and destroyed the temple in AD 70, this glorious temple of theirs and their glorious lifestyle and their smugness perhaps about who they were as God's special chosen people. And 1.1 million Jews died at the hands of the, the armies of Rome at that time. And the temple was destroyed. And so are many other aspects of Jerusalem at that time. And the Lord spoke about that. And he spoke about the signs that would be leading up to AD 70 that they could have a look at and see and be prepared for the influx of the Roman armies to come and destroy them. But only as a reminder, as a prelude to what was going to ultimately happen, not just locally in Jerusalem, in Israel, but worldwide. So here they were in their sort of, well, pride, I guess, uh, said this. And verse 6, And as for these things which ye behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus here is prophesying the day was coming when this temple and many other aspects of Jerusalem were going to be torn apart. And what you trusted in, this is only an illustration, what you trust in, is going to be torn apart. Our lifestyle, our materialism, our politicians, our governments, our, our, our various other abilities and bank accounts and achievements and so on, they won't hold you in good stead. The armies will tear through all of that as they did back then. Now, in, uh, when they heard this, uh, they said in verse 7, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? So they wanted some indication. Now in Matthew, it says this, And what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? So they linked, as we've said before in the past, they linked the destruction of the temple and the total uh, upheaval of their lifestyle in Jerusalem. Oh, that must be the end of the world. That must be when you're returning, Lord. That must be the end of, the, of, of all things. No, it wasn't to be. They're two distinct events, as all the other things that we could look at are distinct events, but they're all designed to make us stop and think. So the people then, as we are now able to read it in history, recognise, well, they had their signs, they had their indications, they had their opportunities, they had been warned, they were told to be on guard. Did some take advantage of that? Did many not? And just as this age is now being warned 
consistently over a period of time. Is this age taking notice of it? Are even spirit-filled people taking notice of it? How many spirit-filled people are really alert to what's actually happening? Or are they too consumed with life and life stuff? Is that what it's all about? Well, the Lord is wanting to warn us here. And he said in verse 8, Take heed that ye be not deceived. So he wanted to make sure that we saw the signs, that we saw the recognition was taking place. Uh, yes, when you read through some of the scriptures, they're sort of interwoven a bit. And we see some of the events that the Lord seems to be talking about in Jerusalem back then in AD 70. But of course, he wants us to get the bigger picture about what's going to take place. So he does mention, he goes on and talks about the things that we often talk about. Wars, rumours of wars, uprising, pestilence, diseases, earthquakes, natural disasters, false religions, people calling themselves even Jesus or at least having a following in the name of Jesus, which is totally untrue and unrighteous and unacceptable. He has all of that stuff. Even the word pestilences is mentioned in there. Well, they're all there. And so he warns us that was what was going to happen before AD 70, and it did. If you go back and look at history... Leading up to AD 70, the people back then had plenty of warning these things were happening because these things have always been happening. Pandemics are not a new thing, by the way. I don't think we should necessarily say, oh, this pandemic is the one that we focus on. No, we've been getting warnings about lots of things. It's not one pandemic that it's all about. Oh, it's been a, an upheaval, but a far more people died in the Spanish flu. Far, far more people died. And a greater percentage of the population of the world when we're only what two billion or so back then, uh, far greater population. But we're getting the constant warnings. It's not about one individual thing. It's about a collective picture. That's what the Lord wanted us to appreciate, the collective picture of this world. What is it like? Does it need fixing? Does it need the government of Jesus Christ, God Almighty, to take control? Of course it does. It's a disaster. And we somehow other think, oh, we'll sort it out, we'll change governments, we'll do this, we'll do that. And we'll, who knows, when they shall say peace and safety, things may settle down again. But the warnings are very clear here. Be on guard, because as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Lot, people were going on about their lives thinking it can just be fixed and it'll be all okay. We will get through this. And then the clouds open up and the, the glory of, of the example of lightning and thunder and so on will be the trumpet of the Lord. As somebody just joked, we've, got, we've had the last trump. He's gone now from America, so maybe we're, we're waiting for the return of the Lord now. Well, we can joke about it if you like, but let's remind ourselves this is very real. Let's go back to Luke 17 again where we were. So those warnings were to them, but more importantly they're to us. Of course, the Roman army was gathering around the walls of Jerusalem later. They had their indications and we have ours. And we've been reminding people for decades about it. And some people get a bit complacent and say, oh, well, where is his coming? You know, the revival fellowships talked about the return of the Lord. Well, I've been in the Lord almost 51 years now and uh, we've been talking about it, of course. And we'll keep talking about it. But it's a fact. Jesus Christ spoke of Noah and the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot as a fact. The Son of God uh, spoke about these things as absolute truth. 
Now, people are still speculating about the flood, still wondering about Sodom and Gomorrah, still wondering whether uh, these things are real events, still arguing, debating and being cynical and sceptical about the word of God. Jesus spoke of them. He was truth and he spoke of them as truth, their reality. And Jesus Christ is coming back. That's a fact. All the people in the hall said, out there hopefully too, He's coming back, whether we're ready or not, whether the world's ready or not, whether they're thinking about it or not, whether they could care less or not, the Lord's coming back. And uh, boy, when the flood came, it came. And I wonder what they were thinking right that moment and what was happening when fire and brimstone was pouring down on Sodom and Gomorrah. If only, if only, too late. There's a stark warning for all of us, isn't there? So he goes on. Uh, down in verse um, 30, even, this is chapter 17, back to Luke 17, even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, now keep in mind, part of this is to do with the armies of, of Romans coming in, in, starting in 67, but eventually hoarding them, coming in in hordes in 70 AD. So he's giving them warning but the terminology we can expand for us. So let's read it. Verse 31, that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff is in the house, let him not come down to take it away. He that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. So when the armies are coming in in AD 70, you haven't got time to consider your stuff. They're going to come in and destroy you. 1.1 million were killed. So you've got not much of a chance. When you see it, get out and run for your life, as it were. Now, we can't take this literally for us. It's just telling us, are we attached to our stuff? Does our stuff mean more to us? Do we think about the Lord's return? Are we seeing the signs and indications all around us? Do we recognise who we're meant to be and what we're meant to be involved in? Or are we consumed by materialism, by life, and all the mundane stuff that life's involved with. And that's, what the, that's the message here. When you see these things, don't get too bogged down with the life. doesn't mean to be irresponsible. doesn't mean buying a log cabin in the middle of the Australia somewhere or other and taking a few toilet papers up with you. That's not, that's not the idea at all. The idea is to, yes, do what you have to do, but recognise the Lord's returning. And it could be very soon. It could be soon and very soon. I won't sing it to you. Remember Lot's wife. What did Lot's wife do? Was the turning back the real issue? I mean, the fact that she turned her head and looked back, that wasn't the real issue. The real issue was from within. She had a longing for what that stuff involved in Sodom and Gomorrah. She couldn't get a vision. Well, this is all wrong and judgment's coming against this. And I'm, hallelujah, I'm out of there. She looked back with a longing and desire for that life. As so many people are longing for this life, so clinging to it, so significant it is for them. And we've got the big bash to cricket on every night and that's significant to everybody. Or if it's the, the ashes or it might be golf because we hear about golf recently. We, we, we hear about sport, how sporting events lined up with the Bible. Well, people are, are consumed with life. And he said, remember Lot's wife, because if you're consumed with Sodom and Gomorrah, if that's where your treasure is, 
if that's where your life is, well, she was turned into a pillar of salt. There's no future. Whosoever, verse 33, shall seek to save his life. If we think that our life is attached and secure because of the house we own, the car we own, the job we've got, the people we know, our bank accounts, if we think that somehow or other we are secure, that we can be, uh, we can organise our future, that we can have uh, uh, this and that and we can go here and there and once the pandemic's finished, well, we can plan out our trips and our tours and the things we want to do. And I'm not suggesting these are wrong. I'm merely saying if, that, if our energy, our desires, our ambitions, our approaches are all the time fixated on, on, on the world events and the, the world things that we can do and or the things that we own and the things that we can achieve and so on. If that's where our motivations are, if that's where our aspirations are, well, the Bible says we'll lose it. Of course. Because you can take none of that with you, no matter what you own. You can own a whole 10-storey block of flats. <laughs> you can't take it with you. You can own five cars in, in this extended garage of yours and they're all these antique vintage cars which are all worth a fortune but you can't drive around in one of those in heaven. Ain't going to work. So the Lord's telling us that. Now remember, this is all about his return. He's talking about his return here and he's saying, you know what, they are going to be people who are going to miss it. They're going to miss it because they're not focused on it. They're not thinking about it. They've got too many other things on their mind. Too many other things to do. Too many other things to achieve. And whosoever shall lose his life will hang loose a bit from some of these things. I'm not talking about being irresponsible. You go to work and be a good work person. You save your money by all means. You buy a new fridge. I don't care. But your fridge ain't going to be the answer. Nor is your work. Nor is your relationship with other people. It's going to be you and God. Me and God. Work out your own salvation. Fear and trembling, the Bible says. And whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. So desperate are we to preserve our, our natural life and we lose sight of an eternal life. That's the world. Now the Lord's saying this because it can catch us out too. Otherwise, no point in him saying to it. He could say, oh, well, the world's going to be caught out and they're done for. You're okay because you're spirit-filled now and uh, you, of course you wouldn't do any of this stuff. Well, it's not true. The Bible talks about the lukewarmness at the end of the age. Who are we talking about? Spiritual people. The rest of the world's not lukewarm. They're dead set cold. They're done for. We're talking about spiritual people who are careless, casual, half-baked, not focused, blurry vision, who don't appreciate the the magnitude and the enormity and the spectacular involvement that they're included in through the grace of God. So he warns them, you'll lose your life. Don't be so hell-bent on saving this one because you'll be hell-bent otherwise. Verse 34, I tell you, in that night, what night? The night the Lord returns. Oh, will it be night? No, well, I guess it will be for some people. We don't know which way it'll be. In fact, you look at these examples, it's giving examples of a really 24-hour day because sometime the Lord returns, there's going to be night somewhere, isn't it? But he's going to brighten up the sky so it'll be day. Or it'll be day somewhere else and he's going to brighten up even more with his glorious return. So he's saying here in that time, in his day, when the Son of Man is returning, his day, 
I tell you, in that night, I tell you, he says, with an emphasis, I'm telling you now that there will be two in one bed. It says two men there, the men's italics. Let's not read anything into that. Two people in one bed. Two people doing exactly the same thing, presumably having a sleep in bed. Outwardly, exactly the same. And if you read the next part, two women grinding or two again, no, the women in italics, shall be grinding together. One shall be taken, the other. Two people doing exactly the same in a mill somewhere, inside somewhere else, working away in a factory or whatever. Obstensibly looking exactly the same. May well have a uniform on, which makes them almost identical. Maybe with some hairpiece because they're working in a chocolate factory. And you look at them and they're exactly the same. But there's a big difference. One of them is spirit-filled and looking to the Lord for his return and he, he or she gets taken up. And the other one, identical to all intents and purposes, to an observer, looking through the, uh, we went to the chocolate factory the other day, that's all in Yarra, Yarra Valley, Yarra Glen there, other. so yeah, people working behind the, the glass thing there and so, and, and they might not all look the same. One goes up and one stays where they are. They can wallow in their chocolate. Sounds nice, but it won't be because it'll be on fire. Verse 36, two men shall be in the field, the one shall be taken, the other left. So they're out there labouring away in the field. Life is going on. We're sleeping, we're going to bed, we're sleeping, we're, we're in factories, we're working, we're in the kitchen making scones or whatever. Others are out in the paddocks uh, looking after their cows or ploughing the fields or whatever. Life, it's just a picture of life. 24 hours day here, whether it's in the middle of the day or in the, some later in the day or whatever, life is going on. But the big difference is one's taken and the other's left behind. Wow. And all look much the same. Life is just looking identical, but there's a vast difference taking place. Now that got their attention. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? I guess I don't know what the question is. Where are they taken? Well, they're taken with Jesus Christ up into the heavenly realm. Hallelujah. Where are the others going? Well, not a good place. Maybe that's all thinking of that. Uh, where is this all going to happen? Do they not understand this wasn't just about Jerusalem? This is about the worldwide situation? How's it all going to unfold? Perhaps they're asking. What, what, what identification will we have? How's it going to take place? What are we looking for? And so on. And we read here in verse 37 at the end, and he said unto them, wherever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Now, the Roman army, their standard was an eagle. So they could get some natural appreciation of that. When you see that eagle standard hovering out there, you better learn. But it's more than that. The message here is simple. We've given it to you before. When there's a carcass or a dying animal in the desert and you see the vultures or the eagles circling around, you won't see the animal. You might be too far away. You look up in the sky and you can see, wow, you know that when those eagles are circling around, there is a dead or dying body there. That's what they're waiting for. They're ready to pounce on it. And the Lord is saying here, you can see that. You can identify the signs. He uses other illustrations about the weather and so on at various times. He's given us every indication and every opportunity to get it right. But the overall message is here is clear. 
This world is the dying body. And judgment is pending, hovering over this world. The Lord, the judge of all, the supreme judge is hovering. He's about to come back and pronounce judgment on this planet. Just as in Noah's time, just as in Sodom and Gomorrah's time, just as in Jerusalem's time, the Lord is hovering. And he's giving the example, when you see all of these things in place and you have to be blind or deliberately ignorant if you can't recognise the world in which we live. If we think this world is such a wonderful place. I heard someone again in the United States saying, America is such a wonderful place. Well, what God made is pretty wonderful. Yosemite's nice. Yellowstone's great. The Colorado uh, mountains and so they're all terrific. But what we've created is a disaster, an absolute disaster. And we're kidding ourselves that somehow or other it's okay, it's not okay. The world is just about done for and judgment is at the door. And that's, that's the picture here the Lord wants us to, to understand. It says in Psalm 53, I'll quote from another translation, God looks down from heaven. All have turned their backs on him. They are filthy with sin, corrupt and rotten through and through. That's his judgment. That's his comment about it. And the world is awaiting that ultimate judgment from him. The carcass is there. The birds are hovering. And that's what the Lord wants you to understand. So in these verses here, he's making it very clear, I'm coming back. Judgment is hovering over this world. There's going to be a dramatic change. And not all are going to be on the good side of this. Some taken, some left behind. You need to be ready, he's saying. And then, verse 1 of chapter 18. Verse 1 of chapter 18. And he spoke a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Do we see the connection now? He's saying, you had better get serious. If you want to be with me, if you want to avoid the judgment and the doom, if you want to get in board the ark, and only eight did with Noah, only eight, well, seven with Noah, eight altogether. Only eight of them got on board an ark. Decades of opportunity, decades of signs and indications and preaching and the wherewithal, and only eight got on board. And what about Lot's time? Well, even his wife, who partly got out, didn't get out. Wow, very few, very few are going to be saved, the Bible says. He said, if you want to be part of that very few, you better pray. You better build yourself up in your most holy faith. We'll read that scripture even if I go over time today. Now, I'm not going to read the parable, but it says here, this is the purpose of it. I won't need to read the parable. But men ought, the word ought there, as you know, and I often repeat myself, D-I in the Greek. Alex is over there. He'll confirm that. It means of a must, of a necessity, needful, right and proper. Considering what he's just said, it is obviously needful that we need to be strong in the Lord because a lot of stuff coming on this planet, we better be ready for it. And if we think the pandemic was bad, well, I think the worst is yet to come. And we need to be strong. 
And so we ought always to pray at all times to be constant, consistent, and not to faint. No matter what happens, don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. Don't get put off. Don't stagger and reel. Don't tire and collapse. Don't be discouraged. Don't be careless and casual. You need to maintain our faith and our faithfulness and our prayerfulness. Now, I won't read the parable, but let's come to the conclusion again at the, in verse 8. Verse 8, halfway down says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, it's all about the Son of Man coming. Can we get the picture? The Lord is wanting us to understand this is all culminating in my return. This is not about your life down here. It's not about how many kids you've got, how many grandchildren you've got, how many great-grandchildren you've got. If you live long enough, you accumulate all that sort of stuff. It's not about that. Oh, love them, help them, do what you possibly can, live your life uh, in the best possible way, but keeping in mind it's about his return because eventually, no matter how long you live, you eventually die and you can't take anything with you. And once you're dead, there's no more hope after that unless you die in the Lord. There's no second chances here. There's no pleading your cause. There's no getting before and getting a lawyer, getting the best, some barrister on your side to plead with God or plead with Jesus Christ. This is our chance. The Bible says it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion in Ecclesiastes. This is our opportunity. You don't get another opportunity. This is it. We need to make the best of it. So he says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Nevertheless. Isn't that an amazing concept? With all the spirit-filled people on the planet there are, and with all the signs and indications, with all the things that we know about, with all the communication now, you can Google all of this. You can find out where all the disasters are taking place. You can find out how many people are dying of earthquakes how many there are, what their magnitudes are. You can get graphs and all, you can get all sorts of things. You can look up all the bits and pieces. You can find out how many die of this, how many die of that, what's happening here, the government over here. You can read about all the insurrections. You can read about all the wars and rumours of wars. You can read about uh, people being arrested at borders and so You can read about all of this stuff. You can know, you know every single thing, practically, what's happening on the planet. And it'll probably be worse than that. There's probably some things behind the scenes we don't know about. We can do all of that. And Jesus Christ says, nevertheless... Given all of this, given the magnitude of what it's all about, the return of Jesus Christ, the King of glory to take up his throne, given all of that, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people who are faithful and prayerful? Remember, it's about prayer. In fact, one translation says, when I return, how many will I find who have been have faith and are prayerful? Another one says, and are praying. Will I find it? Will I find people who are serious, dedicated, committed? Or are we just too busy? We're just eating, drinking and buying and selling and, uh, and giving and taking in marriage and arranging this and arranging that and planning this and planning that and, and playing on our Xbox and playing games and watching television and, and, uh, and going down the street. No, we're just doing, oh, yeah, none of that which is necessarily sinful but consumes a lot of our time and energy, doesn't it? Let's go over to Jude. I can go a bit longer. We only had uh, a couple of short testimonies, didn't we? And where are you going anyway? Jude. Just one book in Jude. Second last book of the Bible, of course. 
It has 25 verses in it, but we're not going to read them all. We're going to start in verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Way back then in Enoch's day, it was about the return of the Lord. That's what it's about. That's what this book's about, return of the Lord. And the amazing thing about it is the Lord is given us an opportunity to be part of it. We who don't deserve any of that, we who are corrupt, he's going to cleanse us through the Holy Spirit and if we stay faithful, we rise to meet him in the air. What an amazing concept. But we read here in verse 15, what's he coming to do? To execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Got the picture? It's a carcass. It's an ungodly world. And it involves most people at various levels. Little old Aunt Mabel, if she's not spiritual to look into the Lord, she's in this category too. And she's lined up with all those on death row. It seems unkind and so, um, maybe inconsistent or whatever in people's minds. No, no. This is a God who decided this is how it works. I'm giving the opportunity. Get it right. If you get it right, you live with me forever. Hallelujah. No more pain, no sorrow, no death, no tears, no worries, no stresses, no anxieties, no houses to worry about, no children to worry about, no works to go to, no alarm clocks, no problems whatsoever. Hallelujah. I've got it all in store for you. It's waiting for you. But the ungodly, got a problem. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts and their mouths speak great swelling words, having men's person admiration because of advantage. Well, whether we're talking about one class of people or another, it makes no difference. This is the, the way the world is. This is how we operate generally. We're all concerned about this. Uh, by the way, the, the, the idea of godly or ungodly is hardly a concept in this world today. Who, who talks about the, the ungodly as such? Who talks about being godly? Who talks about good or evil? We don't, we don't even, I don't, who talks about sin? Is that word ever mentioned anymore? Sin. He's a sinner. What does that mean? We don't even know what it means nowadays. We don't, we don't have any demarcations. We don't have any standards. We can do what we like. I was just saying before the meeting, how crazy is this world? In, in, um, in America just recently, I'm picking on America now, but uh, I'm half American, I can do that. Um, they, they were passing or trying to pass this law about gender. And so, they, so you can't call your mother and father mother and father. You've got to call them your parent. So any, do, any document that is involved in this, mother and father are out now, it's parent. Son and daughter is out, it's child. Brother and sister is out, it's sibling. You can't, have you can't have grandsons or granddaughters, you have grandchildren. So they want to eliminate all of this. Now, they, they had a, this was all being debated and whatever in the parliament. At the end of this, they had some sort of prayer, and the guy up the front had a prayer, and he finished up by saying uh, at the end, Amen and A women. <laughs> Mad, absolute madness. M-E-N, at the end of the word amen, has got nothing to do with gender whatsoever. That is how stupid we are. Now, that's only a trivial example, we might say, but the world has gone crazy and the Lord has to come back and fix it up and bring a bit of sanity into the place. So 
all of these people doing great swelling things and great swelling words and looking for people and positioning themselves, particularly the politicians. Um, but beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you there should be mockers in the last time who would walk after their own ungodly lusts. The world is full of people working out, walking after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves sensual, motivated by the senses, motivated by materialistic things, having not the spirit. Having not the spirit. That's the demarcation in this book. You're either spirit-filled and walking in the spirit, abiding in the spirit, alert to the spirit, praying in the spirit, or you're not. And the rest is sensual, natural, carnal, sold under sin, the Bible says. These be they who separate themselves. They separate themselves by their unbelief, by their attitude, by their disregard of God's ways and God's principles, by their mocking and scoffing and scorning and feeling secure. We don't need God. We came from an amorphous blob. We crawled out of an ocean somewhere or other. And over a period of time, look at us. Yeah, how clever are we? We've done well, haven't we? I think we should, we should go back a bit, I think. We haven't improved. We might be better to go back to an amorphous blob. These be those separate themselves, sensual, having not the spirit, but you, beloved. Now, this is, remember, in the context of what? The prophecy that God was coming through his son, Jesus Christ, to execute judgment upon this world, that Jesus Christ is returning. And this is the context again. And what does he say? You, beloved, you better build up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. You better be praying, he says. You better be building yourselves up. You better be strong in the Lord because uh, you need to be ready. You need to be watchful. It's going to happen and you need to be strong in the Lord. So, folk, this is no time to be careless or casual, is it? This is no time to be caught up and consumed and feel sorry for ourselves. This is no time to be, oh, oh. Well, whatever you have to go through, we'll pray about it, of course. But the best is still yet to come as far as we're concerned, even though the worst is still yet to come as far as the world is concerned. We need to build ourselves. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's pretty critical, isn't it? And how do we do that? By praying in the Holy Ghost and being mindful and careful. In Romans 12, when it talks again about being not conformed to this world, what does it say? Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Maybe the major part of this talk today is about prayer, but, but that's sort of a, an all-embracing thing. Praying is what we're praying for. We're praying for our strength. We're praying for our understanding. We're praying for our appreciation. We're praying that we keep our vision. We're praying that we, under, we, we understand where the world is heading, what people are involved in and so on, what we're going to do about it. Various translations, it says continuing instant in prayer. Other translations have persist in prayer, constant in prayer, faithful in prayer, Continuing steadfastly in prayer, always be prayerful, devoted to prayer, persevere in prayer, steadfastly maintain the habit of prayer. In First Thessalonians, again, First Thessalonians chapter 5 talk about the return of the Lord and then down the list it says, pray without ceasing. Watch it says and pray without ceasing. 
In Ephesians 6, what's the most critical aspect of your armour? There are seven aspects. The last one is praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, speaking in tongues, hallelujah, watching thereunto with all perseverance. Another translator said with unwearied persistence. Colossians says, be earnest and unwearied and steadfast in your prayer life being both alert and intent in your praying. You know, in Acts chapter 2, when they first received the Holy Spirit, uh, you read about Acts 2, verse 38. We often quote that about repenting and uh, getting baptised in water and receiving the Holy Spirit. We often repeat that. But just only a couple of verses later, it says, they continued what? Steadfastly in prayer. Pretty critical. In Matthew 26, watch and pray, we read. Keep alert and pray. Give strict attention, be cautious, be active, that you may not come into temptation. Because the Lord's at hand, of course. Now, I want you to, we're going to finish back in Luke 21. Luke 21. I've gone over time, I realise that. I was going to give another talk about a question today, so we won't do that. We'll just combine it with this talk. At least the time, anyway. Luke 21. Remember at the start of this, he's talking about, uh, um, well, the temple being overthrown and Jerusalem and, and all the problems there and reminding us about great distress and so on. You go down to verse 25, halfway down it says, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. And the seas and the waves roaring doesn't mean about the Indian Ocean. It's talking about people, the upheaval, the chaos, the confusion. Have a look at some of the photographs on the videos coming out of America. I'm, again, I'm sorry, picking on America, but it's obvious. It's a good example of absolute chaos that's taking place there. And people don't know what to do about it. They're perplexed. They don't see a way out. What's the end of all of this? And the seas and the waves are roaring. They're even storming capital buildings and just sitting in the, the seats of Congress and so on, dressed in their army uniforms and camouflage uniforms. Wow. I think that's the first time that's happened over 100 years or something. I'm read. Someone can correct me on that. Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of Uranus shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, like lightning from one end of the earth to the other. And when they see these things, and when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. It doesn't mean literally look up, or you can do it if you want to, sort of keep your eyes open, get your telescopes out, or whatever, uh, binoculars they are, aren't they? Uh, you can do whatever you like. But that's just saying, hey, have a confident expectation here. Hallelujah. Don't be apprehensive, be expectant. Be hopeful. The Lord's coming back. Things are going to be different now. Praise the Lord. When you see these things come to pass, well, it's too late. They're already coming to pass. So we should be anticipating the return of the Lord every day, any day. Praise the Lord. And make sure for we redeem your redemption draweth nigh, our ultimate redemption, a new body. Praise the Lord. And he spoke to them a parable about a fig tree. We don't want to go into that, but it does apply, no doubt, to the nation of Israel, but also applies just to natural things. You see, you look at the weather, you look at agriculture, you look at eagles and bodies, you look at the signs, they're all there, he says. You know, you can discern, you'll work it out. It's summertime. It's not too, not too difficult to work out. It shouldn't be too difficult to work out the Lord's returning either. Verse 33, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. I'm coming back. 
And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time. Now I'm coming back, but I want you to take heed. I want you to watch carefully to yourselves, to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, raging, and drunkenness, and cares of this life, so that you be, the day come upon you unawares. Well, we're not going to get drunk because we don't drink alcohol, but we can be intoxicated by the world and all the stuff the world presents to us. And we can be staggering from one thing to another, reeling like a drunken person, caught up with it all. And he said, I don't want you to get caught up with it all. For as a snare shall it come on all of them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. A snare. It's a reminder, isn't it, that maybe it's not going to be as obvious as some people might think it's going to be. We're not going to see be in the middle of a nuclear war perhaps. I, I don't know. All I do know is he's saying here, watch ye therefore in verse 36 and and pray always that you may be accounted worthy. That's a shocking translation. It's a shocking translation. Accounted worthy is one word in the Greek and it means to be strong. Nothing to do with worthiness at all. Nothing to do with it. And so the Greek word there to be accounted worthy means to be strong or to be able to prevail. We're made worthy by the blood of the Lamb. We're not made worthy by, by something we might do. We're praying in the Spirit not to make ourselves worthy, but to make ourselves strong in our worthiness that the Lord has given us. Watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be strong to prevail to escape all these things that shall come upon and to stand before the Son of Man. Hallelujah. That's what it's all about. It says in another translation, the Amplified, keep awake and watch at all times. Be discreet, attentive, ready, praying that you may have the full strength to stand in these last days. Hallelujah. To be strong enough spiritually. Jesus Christ is returning. The message from Jesus himself is, are you ready? Be ready. Be prayerful. Be faithful. Be alert. Because you're going to live with me for eternity. And it's worth it. All the people said. Amen. Amen.